Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I'm your host. And uh, just to start it off, uh, there is no other way to slice it but then to say that this past week has been a political barn burner. Um, we are going to talk about several things on this episode uh, relating to uh, presidential politics. But I want to start off with uh, a different story that uh, comes uh, originates out of Alabama, uh, circles up through Washington, D.C. and the Supreme Court. On um, Thursday, uh, this past Thursday, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Alabama's congressional map, uh, which uh, features one majority black district and six majority white districts, uh, that it actually violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, Now, Section 2 uh, is the section that deals with discrimination based on race in any voting procedure Um, and where Alabama ran afoul of that is that they packed all uh, black voters into one congressional district. Uh, By doing so they discriminated based on race in the redistricting process. Uh, So this was a much a surprise Uh, decision coming out of the high court. Uh, It didn't really have a lot of advance warning uh, as to which way the court was going to go, although it was known that they were, in fact, looking at the Alabama uh, district map. Now, uh, the, of course, the the districts are determined by the census, which is uh, performed every 10 years, and once the census has been completed and all the results Uh, certified, then uh, the states go about the process of analyzing and redrawing the congressional district lines based on the new population tallies that came out of this out of the census. So based on the 2020 census, Alabama, which has seven congressional districts, uh, each one of those districts represents 14% of the population uh, that what happened and and the results of the uh, census data said that uh, Alabama had a black population of 27.79 percent or if you round it up you know call it 28 percent of uh, black Alabamians so with that what the logical uh, approach would be uh, would be to have two districts each with 14% of the total, uh, which equals the 28%. And the, the legislature decided not to give two congressional districts, but decided to pack all black Alabamians into one, which is a direct violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So the, the, uh, a number of groups... Uh, including Alabama Forward and others, sued over the map. And uh, it, it has you know, been a, a contentious battle. Uh, according to one of the representatives from Alabama Forward, uh, she noted that after they filed a lawsuit, a three-judge panel heard the case and agreed 
and said Alabama did, in fact, need to redraw its district maps. Uh, and their attorney general uh, appealed that decision to the Supreme Court. Now, the, the panel that ordered the congressional elections uh, stayed until a new map was drawn. In February 2022 uh, ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court lifted that, uh, that stay, saying that it was too close to Alabama's May primary election to remake the map. So when that answer came down, uh, you know, of course, that was something of a shock to the people who had sponsored the lawsuit. And so the appeal was repositioned to, um, to the Supreme Court. And uh, on Thursday, the Supreme Court handed down a decision saying that, yes, in fact, Alabama's districts violated uh, the Voting Rights Act and must be redrawn in in concurrence with the 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 letter of the law uh, regarding you know districts. So as a result, Alabama is going to have to uh, draw new districts. It's going to have to apportion their voters according to the rules laid out in the Voting Rights Act. And um, the the question becomes. Uh, when you know this will be completed, uh, will it have an impact on the 2024 national election? Most thinking is that it will not. The process itself uh, takes time, and there's simply not enough time to you know redraw the maps, get them approved. Uh, it's likely that there will be a court battle over them, uh, and get them in place in time for the 2024 election. So the, the hope will be that the districts will be redrawn, they will survive court challenges, uh, and they will be available for the next cycle two years out in 2026. Uh, and as a result, uh, Alabama would actually gain a second um, majority black district. Uh, and uh, that essentially could work to change the the composition of the House of Representatives, or at a minimum, uh, reinforce uh, changes put in place by the ensuing two uh, election cycles that will occur uh, prior to you know any changes to the voting map taking effect. Uh, so we will see about that. The other thing that comes out of this ruling from the Supreme Court is that it's a national ruling. There are at least 12 states that have similar cases that were uh, on hold or up in the air pending the resolution of this case. So now in those states, uh, those suits can proceed forward based on and taking advantage of the precedent that has now been set uh, with this ruling from the Supreme Court. Um, for example, um, the uh, decision on Thursday to preserve the Voting Rights Act protection against racial gerrymanders are already developing in a related case in Georgia. Uh, and there are related or similar cases in Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, as we've talked about, um, and, and other states where racial gerrymandering has, has been applied and uh, has been challenged. 
So now it will remains to be seen if these challenges uh, under the new uh, precedent set by the Supreme Court this week uh, can go forward and potentially be upheld. Now, as I said, there are you know some 12 states where uh, this case has direct bearing on legal action going on. Uh, for example, as I mentioned, Georgia, uh, the Georgia State Conference of the NAACP is challenging the state's congressional and legislative maps as racial gerrymanders under both the 14th Amendment and Section 2 of the VRA, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, some of that litigation uh, is also coming to bear uh, not just on the Alabama case, uh, but in Louisiana, where lower court judges uh, have stated they thought the VRA was probably violated, but stayed their own opinions following the signal of the Supreme Court in this case. Uh, and that, that would have likely produced at least one more minority opportunity district that uh, would have elected a Democrat. So uh, the, the bottom line is if all of these states uh, are, are able to have their uh, racially uh, invalid gerrymanders overturned, uh, Democrats could actually see a, a long-term gain of control in the House of Representatives. Now, of course, you know, A, this is going to take time. Uh, and, you know, as I said, uh, the, the effects of the, of the uh, Alabama case likely won't be felt until at least the uh, 2028 uh, congressional election cycle, um, which also happens to be a national election cycle. So, of course, voter turnout is always much higher uh, for the national elections than it is for the off-year elections. But uh, the the objective of, you know, by the Democrats of gaining control of the House on a more long-term basis with perhaps a larger majority uh, just got a, a much-needed shot in the arm by the Supreme Court decision. But it, it is by no means a slam dunk. Uh, the uh, Republicans are definitely going to be fighting back. So, you know, we will be seeing the uh, the ripples and repercussions of this decision probably for at least the next eight to ten years uh, in this country. Now having said that, you know, it it should be noted that um, in a normal political news week, uh, this news would be huge uh, and, you know, we would be having, you know, a lot broader discussion, you know, across mainstream media about this. You have to keep in mind that um, not only did this this decision come out of left field, uh, it was extremely surprising in terms of who actually uh, was on the uh, the panel that voted for the ultimate decision. The five four decision consisted of uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, Justice Katanji Jackson, and surprisingly, uh, conservative justices Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch joined with uh, those three to make up the majority opinion on that. So that in itself was uh, a very surprising outcome uh, in, in terms of who 
uh, voted for this. Uh, although it is not the first time that this uh, supposed, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, strictly conservative court has come out in favor of uh, some more progressive uh, uh, laws and, and cases that have come before them. So we'll, we'll take the W, uh, but, you know, raise an eyebrow that we are surprised at who exactly formed the majority opinion on this. So, you know, with that happening and, you know, the, the possibilities of more states uh, filing similar or, or allowing similar lawsuits uh, to now move forward, uh, you know, there is a small amount of optimism that maybe a tide is turning in terms of, you know, at least the gerrymandering portion of, you know, voter suppression that's going on. But, you know, uh, history and experience will tell us, you know, don't don't sleep on this. Um, the Republicans and conservatives are known for moving and pivoting from a perceived loss uh, to attacking the the issue they want to to uh, overturn from other positions, so you know we could see some re-energized battles in the you know uh, voter voter identification fronts and you know voter suppression fronts in, in terms of uh, polling places, hours, drop boxes, and, and other things uh, as the Republicans seek to continue uh, their their longstanding Southern strategy of repressing uh, the Democratic or, or essentially anti-Republican vote uh, in this country uh, in all states. So, you know, as I say, um, take a minute, give a hooray for uh, the, the, the Supreme Court's decision, but then buckle right back down and get back to work with uh, what we're doing in terms of eliminating voter suppression and disenfranchisement uh, in this country. So, you know, we will we will keep watch and bring you any news and developments that come up with this. And, you know, we'll probably have more discussions from a political machine standpoint uh, going forward as we now move through the uh, 2024 presidential election cycle. So, Stay tuned, stay informed, um, we'll keep you up to date. And as I mentioned, you know, this being a, uh, the start of the uh, run-up to the 2024 national election, um, the Republicans have been busy. Um, we have uh, what is shaping up to be a very crowded uh, Republican candidate field. Uh, right now, we sit at nine declared candidates uh, for the Republican nomination for president. And uh, to, to run down the list, of course, you know, uh, top of the list is former President Donald Trump. But we have added um, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, uh, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, no stranger to the Fired Up podcast, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence uh, joined uh, just this past week 
as did former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, uh, uh, threw his hat into the ring. And rounding out the nine, we have uh, Doug Burgum, who is the governor of North Dakota. So, you know, we now have, you know, as I said, a nine person field at present uh, running for the Republican nomination. Now, you know, of course, political pundits are, are, you know, going crazy with the speculation about what this could do to the Republican uh, elections to uh, narrow it down to the one you know, Republican nominee for president uh, with uh, much of the conventional wisdom being that uh, a field this wide, this many candidates, uh, really serves to favor the front runner as the vote gets diluted among all of the competitors. Uh, and of course, you know, that means that uh, the likelihood that former President Donald Trump uh, will become the Republican nominee uh, is, you know, more and more, I, I dare I say, assured uh, simply because there are so many other candidates in the field dividing up the vote. Uh, remains to be seen, uh, as we'll, we're, we're going to talk about in a minute, if all of the um, outside the outside of political uh, baggage that Donald Trump is dealing with right now is going to have an impact on his candidacy uh, to become the Republican nominee. Uh, we are going to talk about that uh, in the second half. So you know, don't think I haven't you know, forgotten about it or you know, didn't intend to talk about it. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about it. Uh, but it, it should be noted that, you know, the the candidates uh, that we have uh, are, are almost split evenly between um, known uh, office holders or, you know, former uh, political office holders and people who come from outside of the, quote, political sphere, close quote, uh, and, and seek to uh, perhaps follow in, you know, kind of the path that Trump followed. I mean, Trump was not a political figure, uh, you know, and, and not an elected official when he came down that escalator in 2015. So, you know, perhaps the these others uh, see some encouragement there that, there is an opportunity for them to, you know, to get into uh, the race, to make that name for themselves, to establish themselves, and to become a legitimate contender for the Republican nomination. Uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but I will say this, that, you know, it, it has uh, energized and heated up the rhetoric of the Republican side of the uh, political race uh, with, you know, some some very um, uh, energized and, and you know, aggravated name calling and so forth happening, particularly uh, coming from, you know, Chris Christie um, and, you know, of course, Ron DeSantis being the person in in second place behind Donald Trump right now, uh, they are expending a lot of energy in attacking uh, the former president at you know every turn that they get without uh, trying to offend or 
distance themselves from uh, Trump's base, which all of the candidates uh, covet to be their own. So let, let's take a, a quick look at each of the, um, the other candidates besides Trump uh, who is running and just kind of give some highlight as to what they bring to the table. Um, you know, start with um, Nikki Haley. Uh, she was uh, the United States ambassador to the UN and former governor of South Carolina. Uh, she uh, came into the race early, February 14th, uh, to challenge Donald Trump. Uh, she, you know, brings not only the fact that uh, she is a woman, but that she is uh, a a, uh, a minority uh, to the to the race. Um, so I mean, she has some strengths. Uh, she is, you know, does have some name recognition. Although it it has to be said that she has not garnered a whole lot of traction uh, in the months since her announcement back in February. Moving on to uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, he announced on February 21st of this year, uh, he's a former tech and finance executive and, uh, you know, a, another uh, diverse face for uh, most Americans. Uh, he has, you know, a tremendous educational background. He comes from the business world, uh, which is, you know, typically valued at the primary level among the GOP. Uh, he, he is... Uh, you know, not very well known, um, although he has uh, tried to establish some name recognition by taking some very um, controversial or, you know, some, some very uh, pro-GOP uh, base uh, concern stands uh, up to and including recently saying, you know, uh, that, you know, he would pardon um, Donald Trump, if Donald Trump is convicted, spoiler alert. Um, moving on, we have Asa Hutchinson. Uh, he is uh, Arkansas's former governor. And, you know, so that gives him, you know, executive uh, leadership experience. Um, he is uh, very much um, a, a known entity. Uh, he has run for president before. Um, he has made it clear that you know he he has opposition to uh, the front runner Donald Trump, and that may make it difficult for him to gain any traction among the base that these Republican candidates covet so so mightily. Um, Tim Scott uh, launched his presidential uh, campaign in May of this year. Uh, he you know besides. Uh, being African-American and from a key early GOP primary state, uh, South Carolina. Um, he is conservative, but his diverse background and upbringing uh, give him a different perspective uh, to the white-dominated Republican Party. Uh, he does have a commanding uh, presence uh, in, in the Republican uh, Party, even uh, taking into account the fact that he's African-American. Um, but like some of the others, uh, he's known uh, where he is known. Much of the country 
has very little knowledge of Tim Scott. So he has an uphill battle uh, in order to gain that name recognition. Contrast that with our next uh, candidate, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has no problem with name recognition, uh, particularly on this show. Um, you know, he is, is being described as being, you know, Donald Trump without the baggage um, or Trump with a brain. You know, uh, he's very well educated. Uh, he's, he's young in, in political terms at being 44 years old. Um, but he has uh, created a lot of controversy in his own state of Florida, uh, among other things, with his response to the COVID pandemic in Florida. And then more recently uh, with, you know, his his ongoing battle with uh, Disney Corporation uh, because they uh, spoke out in opposition to his Don't Say Gay bill. Uh, and um, also more recently, uh, his stance on you know, illegal immigration is creating an economic crisis in Florida as uh, immigrant workers have, uh, by and large, fled the state. So, you know, he, he has pluses and minuses, but right now it seems his minuses are a little bit larger than his pluses. Next, we have former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who, uh, like DeSantis, is uh, very smart. Uh, he is a pull-no-punches speaker. Uh, he was... Um, uh, Donald Trump's uh, campaign director uh, or transition director uh, early on, uh, although he did fall out with Donald Trump over the January 6th insurrection. Uh, he has, has already uh, started his, his campaign in pulling no punches in terms of his criticism of the former president. Uh, so uh, he will be uh, one to keep an eye on. And as I said, he entered the race just this week on June 6th. Uh, next up uh, is former Vice President Mike Pence. Um, he just announced on June 7th uh, his biggest strength, as well as the big reason he was Trump's vice president in the first place, uh, that he has a strong appeal with white Christian evangelicals. Uh, they are a, a huge portion of the Republican base, uh, particularly in Iowa and other parts of the Midwest. Um, he you know, had a very public break with Donald Trump. Uh, he incurred the wrath of the MAGA wing of the uh, Republican Party through his refusal to participate in the, the, the non-certification of the electors in the 2020 election, and he has caught a lot of flack behind that. And then um, we have Doug Burgum, who also announced on June 6th. Uh, he's a fresh face. He's a new guy. Uh, not a lot of, of baggage uh, nationally. He's the governor of North Dakota, although you know he has uh, implemented tax cuts and he's rolled back transgender rights. Uh, which probably makes him a darling of the conservative Republican uh, side of the party, 
but in a general election would probably be a detriment to his candidacy. Uh, so, you know, in, in an already crowded field um, right now, he has a, a very, uh, very little profile. So we'll see uh, what happens uh, with these candidates. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll keep up to date and keep you informed about the headlines they make or their positions as they become known uh, as we proceed through the election process uh, toward the Republican nomination. So, you know, it, it, as I said, it, it was a barn burner week. Uh, we've still got the 8,000 pound gorilla news story to talk about, um, but, you know, it, it's, it's going to be interesting. It's going to mean that we have to make sure that we are doing our diligence, being informed and finding out about uh, all of the candidates on both sides uh, and, you know, what they stand for, uh, what they mean for, you know, the the everyday rank and file Americans. And, you know, no better place to keep track of that than right here on Fired Up. So let's take our break here. When we come back on the other side, we are going to jump into the latest uh, tribulation of you know, Donald Trump and what's going on there. So you're listening to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. We'll be right back after the message. We're often influenced by what we see and hear online. Researchers say black communities have been specifically targeted online by bad actors that post false information about cultural issues, attempting to increase divisions in black communities, influence how we vote, and influence public opinions. Here's how to stop the spread of cultural disinformation. Get information from reliable sources like experts, researchers, or organizations. Make sure you're not misled by information or quotes shared out of context. Check the account. Was it recently created or has zero followers? It may be a troll bot. If a story seems suspicious, don't share it with your followers. Together, we can stay informed and empowered. This public service announcement is from the National Black Cultural Information Trust. Learn more at NBCIT.org. And we're back. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. Well, unless you were out in your starship orbiting in the Delta Quadrant and, you know, off planet for uh, the last week, you missed the uh, huge news that came out uh, this week on uh, former President Donald Trump. So to, to kind of give a little bit of backstory, um, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a uh, special prosecutor to investigate uh, Donald Trump's handling of uh, government documents, uh, among them classified documents, that he removed from the White House when he left office and transported them down to his residence at Mar-a-Lago. So uh, to, to flesh that out a little bit, um, the upshot was that uh, when it was determined that he had uh, you know presidential records uh, the National Archive reached out to 
uh, Donald Trump and requested those documents be returned. Uh, under the um, National Archive and Records Act, or NARA, uh, documents created uh, by the president uh, of any type related to his uh, duties as president uh, are not his personal property. They belong to the people of the United States. And as such, upon leaving office, uh, pre presidents are required to submit all of their records and notes and, you know, whatever uh, documents were created while they were president to NARA in order to be filed in the National Archive. Now, a little bit of back history. Uh, this is a law, and it was uh, put in place um, after the Watergate uh, crisis involving, you know, President Richard Nixon. And the law was written to require that all records and documents and recordings uh, generated by the president during his, his or her term in office uh, must be returned to the government upon their leaving office. Now that's just the thumbnail view of what the um, NARA Act encompasses, uh, but it gives you a sense of, of how we are going to get to where we are right now in, in terms of Trump documents at Mar-a-Lago. So, uh, according to information, uh, when he left the White House on um, January 20th, uh, after Joe Biden was sworn in as president, um, he uh, and his staff took, uh, I believe, about 150 boxes containing documents and mementos and you know, newspaper clippings and all kinds of stuff uh, out of the White House. Now, according to the um, affidavits filed and the indictment issued, and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, there were at least uh, about 100 documents that had some level of classified marking on them, which uh, in included documents that dealt with U.S. national security, uh, defense and military capabilities, not only of uh, the United States, but of some of our allies and some of our enemies uh, and, and various other material that uh, is, is classified. And to uh, possess or view same, you need to have a, uh, a top secret uh, classification uh, for yourself. Now, as president, uh, the president of the United States has access to all these documents. Uh, the president has the highest level of security clearance and can look and, and handle and read, you know, any any document in the archive. Uh, once uh, he left office and was no longer president, Donald Trump did not have uh, that authority any longer. And that's an important point as we we go through this story to realize that um, according to the law, he was no longer entitled uh, to any access, possession, reading um, of you know, classified documents without getting explicit permission from the National Archive and or the Department of Justice uh, or 
the relevant agency, you know, such as the FBI, the DNI, uh, uh, Director of National Intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, um, none of which um, did former President Trump have. So here we have uh, a situation where uh, these boxes were removed from the White House, which is considered uh, a secured location, obviously, and were transported down to his residence in Mar-a-Lago, which is, you know, a, a completely unsecured uh, venue. Now, while while the documents um, were in Mar-a-Lago, you know, they were stored in, in some very unsecure and uh, vulnerable locations. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that as we talk about the indictment itself. Uh, and, um, you know, it is unclear as to who uh, had access to those documents while they were at Mar-a-Lago. So that brings us kind of up to where we are with the indictment. There was an investigation conducted. Uh, a special prosecutor uh, by the name of Jack Smith uh, was brought on uh, by Attorney General Merrick Garland to oversee in its entirety the investigation and you know potential prosecution for any crimes uh, determined uh, in this case. Uh, and this is important because the the critics of this process are calling it political, and the whole purpose that Merrick Garland uh, cited in appointing a special prosecutor was to insulate the Department of Justice from uh, this investigation to eliminate the potential of uh, any consideration of it being a political uh, activity. Um, Jack Smith had you know, full authority to take the investigation wherever he saw fit, uh, to you know, call witnesses, to subpoena testimony, you know, all of that uh, without having uh, to get any, quote, approvals from the attorney general uh, other than at the conclusion of the investigation, at the conclusion of his efforts, uh, you know, the attorney general would need to review and sign off on, you know, any reports or indictments and so forth that were going to be issued. So this process uh, continued for uh, something like a year and a half or so. And, um, you know, the investigation uh, ran its course and the, the attorneys in the special prosecutor's office um, evaluated and analyzed uh, what they had learned. And the, the discussions were turning as to when and if uh, an indictment was going to be uh, handed down and who uh, particularly would be on that indictment. Well, if you had June 8th, 2023 in your office pool for when the indictment uh, was going to be handed down, then you know, you've won some money because on the 8th uh, last week, uh, Jack Smith uh, not only notified Donald Trump that he was a target of the investigation, uh, he issued uh, an indictment uh, naming Donald Trump and an aide at Mar-a-Lago uh, named uh, Wilmette Waltine, I'm sorry, Nauda, 
uh, as uh, defendants in this indictment. And um, they were charged with um, violation of seven federal statutes and a total of 37, um, 37 um, different counts of uh, violations. The, the indictment has been published. It's on the web. I definitely encourage you to uh, search it out, download it, and read it so that you understand the gravity of you know, what former President Trump has done here. Uh, and you know, and, and you know, as we say on this show, do your diligence, you know, do your research, find out uh, what the, the, the facts are um, as you listen to you know, all of the political spin that you're, you're getting and going to get from the mainstream media uh, as everybody is digesting this. Um, I have a copy of the uh, indictment right here on my desk. Um, I have read it. I have marked it up. Um, I have you know, digested and thought about it. And in, in my personal opinion, um, this seems like a, a pretty airtight case. Uh, one of the things that Jack Smith is known for is being meticulously thorough uh, in his investigations. And that is clear when you read uh, this you know, 49-page uh, indictment uh, and, and see what it is that he is uh, alleging that um, Donald Trump and uh, Waltine Nauta uh, violated. Uh, the, the details of it, obviously, given that uh, they are talking about classified material, means that we will likely never know uh, any uh, of the details of the documents other than, you know, the generic titles that have been uh, already uh, reported out and are, or are contained in the indictment itself. Um, you know, these are national secrets. And as such, you know, they, they, you know, obviously are not something that the federal government wants floating around in the open. Uh, and, you know, with that in mind, understand that among the charges that were uh, posted against the former president is that he disseminated some of this information to individuals who uh, were not authorized uh, to see it or interact with it uh, in, in any way. Um, the, the indictment itself uh, lays out a clear timeline. It lays out uh, a, a clear uh, description of uh, where documents were stored at Mar-a-Lago, uh, including photographs that showed, among other things, um, dozens of boxes stacked up on a, a stage in one of the ballrooms, um, boxes that were stored in a bathroom and shower, uh, boxes that were uh, stored in uh, the residents of Mar-a-Lago, uh, and in, in one of the pictures, uh, you can see where one of the boxes actually was tipped over and the document spilled out onto the floor, and you can see the folders with the distinctive red border 
that indicates uh, its contents are in some form or fashion classified uh, being out in the open. Now, there's a, a lot of information uh, in the indictment, uh, even given its, its relatively short length, but you know, it, it clearly describes how on, on one occasion um, the former president was showing documents to visitors to his office including an author who was working on a, a book um, you know, about uh, Merrick Garland, I believe. And you know, Donald Trump is, is, is you know, showing him some of these documents. In another occasion, he's showing some visitors from his political action committee uh, a map, a military map, uh, that shows uh, the, the positions and strength of uh, one of, uh, the countries, you know, that that's an adversary of ours, uh, and you know, he you can you can see, and it's actually on tape because these these meetings were recorded. You can almost hear the glee in his voice as he shows off, uh, you know, this trophy, uh, and you know, tells them, you know, it, you know, this is secret. Um, you know, I I could have declassified this uh, when I was president, but I didn't. So, you know, it's still, you know, top secret, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, it also details, uh, you know, beside violation of the Records Act, it details uh, 31 of the 37 counts in the indictment uh, uh, concerning willful retention of national defense information. Uh, it includes single counts of false statements and representations conspiracy to obstruct justice, withholding document or record, corruptly concealing a document, concealing documents in federal investigation, and a scheme to conceal. Now, what, what those latter ones come from is uh, when the subpoena, or the second subpoena actually, was issued uh, for the FBI to go back and uh, search Mar-a-Lago for additional documents uh, that were not turned in after the first search, even though uh, uh, a Trump lawyer had signed a, uh, an affidavit or certificate uh, of compliance that they had turned over all uh, documents requested under the subpoena. Uh, when the FBI went back the second time, they found an additional uh, 107 documents uh, that had not been turned in in the first time. Uh, and in addition to that, the indictment also details under the obstruction charge where when the, the subpoena was issued, but prior to the FBI arriving on site to execute the search, uh, former President Trump uh, instructed uh, his co-conspirator, uh, Nauto, to uh, relocate boxes so that they wouldn't be found by either his attorney or the FBI, which is an obstruction crime. So as you, you read the indictment, it, it lays out in pretty clear detail uh, exactly how uh, Trump and those that uh, conspired with him, uh, you know, executed uh, this scheme to retain documents he had no legal right to 
to be in possession of. Now, you know, it, it also outlines that, you know, some of the boxes uh, were taken up to his uh, golf club in Bedminster, which is where he met with uh, the author doing research for the book and where he, he met with uh, his people from his political action committee. Uh, it, it details uh, the condition of where um, boxes of these documents were stored uh, and includes uh, several pictures that show boxes in various locations around Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the, the one that, that stands out to me is the one that shows the stage at one of the ballrooms where these boxes were just sitting out in the open on this stage. And, you know, like the other locations, there was no uh, visible evidence of any type of uh, isolation or security applied to these documents. Um, and you know, keep in mind that, you know, Mar-a-Lago is not a, a private residence. It's a, a members only club. And during the time since President or former President Trump left office, you know, literally uh, thousands of people have been at Mar-a-Lago. There have been hundreds of events. Uh, so the idea that, you know, someone, you know, is is wandering around or is, is going around um, and, you know, stumbles across a box of confidential documents uh, is a very real possibility. Now, there are arguments that are being made that the boxes were secured uh, because there is Secret Service presence at Mar-a-Lago. Now, understand the, the role of the Secret Service is to protect the, the person of you know, former President Donald Trump. They are not there to in any way protect boxes of documents. So, you know, that that's a facetious argument to begin with. Uh, and, you know, even as, even now, um, we're, we're starting to see Trump loyalists in, in the Republican Party rallying around the former president, uh, saying that this is, you know, yet another witch hunt orchestrated by uh, President Joe Biden. Well, let's dispel that myth. Um, Joe Biden has no involvement. Uh, the office of the president does not get involved with investigations being conducted by the Department of Justice. Uh, the, the Department of Justice, uh, in, in the person of Merrick Garland, had handed over uh, total authority on the investigation to the special prosecutor, particularly for that reason, to isolate the investigation from any connection to uh, a, a political arm of the federal government, so you know it, it's you know it, it's shocking as as you read the document. And again, I, I strongly urge that you know whether you are you know pro-Trump or anti-Trump, uh, you know whether you are are conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat, I strongly urge that you download this document and you know read it with you know an open mind just read it like you would you know a novel on on saturday night curled up with a cup of coffee uh and you know let it sink in as to what uh they are talking about 
you are going to hear, or as I said, you're already hearing all kinds of spin coming out of uh, the Republican loyalist camps in the MAGA world. Uh, but you know, you need to read this document, uh, read it, you know, clearly and with an open mind, and just let it sink in that the the former president had taken documents and materials that actually compromised the security of the United States, uh, the personnel, uh, both U.S. personnel, that is military, uh, you know, special operations uh, and so forth, as well as personnel of our allies uh, who were, would, would provide information to us, including conf- confidential informants in you know, uh, enemy countries, you know, like Iran, like the Soviet Union, like North Korea, and so forth, that risk their lives to provide uh, uh, information to the United States intelligence community about what's going on uh, that could affect the security and defense of our country. Now, the the questions remain as to exactly what goal did Donald Trump have for, you know, taking, you know, all of these documents with him to Mar-a-Lago? Speculation ranges from, you know, he was looking at opportunities to, uh, air quotes, sell secrets to, you know, the highest bidder. Uh, He or he wanted to keep them as trophies or, you know, mementos of, you know, his time as president. Uh, or just as, as something that he could, you know, show off to his friends and say, you know, this is, this is what I did as president. This is, you know, what being president means, so on and so forth. Uh, in, in any event, um, clearly there, there's crime that's been committed here. And, you know, Jack Smith has, has done, you know, a, a thorough job in painting the picture for the American public as to what exactly it was that, you know, Donald Trump did with these documents or was doing with these documents. Uh, and, you know, we, we will see uh, as best we can uh, what happens when he appears in uh, court in the Southern District of Florida on Tuesday at 3 p.m., uh, to be formally arraigned on these charges. Now, again, given the nature of the materials we're talking about, they are likely not going to sit there and do a recitation of what's contained in the documents. Uh, they are top secret. They are classified. And, you know, as much as Donald Trump would like to think that he could declassify these documents uh, with his mind or just by taking them with him, that they automatically were declassified, that is not the case. Let me set the record on that. There is, you know, presidents are entitled to to access and handle these documents. Um, but in order to remove them from secure locations, there is a permission process uh, through the National Archive, uh, through the Department of Justice and whatever the relevant agency that these documents you know, pertain to. You know, it may be they may be army documents. So the the Department of the Army 
has to sign off on it, or they may be, you know, whatever type of documents. None of that has been done. These doc, these requests were not made. There were no permissions given. Uh, Donald Trump, upon leaving office on January 21st, 2021, was in fact a private citizen and was no longer entitled to possess these documents. Uh, and his possession of them is a violation of United States law. Uh, those are the clear facts. He possessed them. They were at his residence in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, he was not entitled to possess them. They were not declassified and therefore were subject to uh, the, the confidential records laws of the United States. Uh, so among the seven charges uh, that were levied uh, not only included records violations, but also included violations of the Espionage Act. So, you know, there, there is the, the potential for a, a mountain of trouble for the former president, uh, you know, when he goes to trial on these charges uh, and, you know, should he be convicted some of these document uh, charges and the obstruction charges carry, you know, 20 year maximum prison terms. So, you know, when you add up all of the, the counts, uh, there is a maximum amount of over 100 years of prison time that might be involved with this. Uh, now, you know, I, I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, uh, uh, Judge Eileen Cannon who will sit over this case once it is brought uh, is going to levy 100 years of charges against the former president of the United States. However, uh, if justice is to be done, then you know, there, there could very likely be several years, uh, maybe even many years of prison time uh, assessed for this. Um, even if it's, you know, uh, one year per violation, that's 31 years. So, you know, it, it remains to be seen exactly how this is going to play out in court. Uh, now, some things to think about with this. Number one, the facts are that Donald Trump removed these documents from the White House when he had no legal authority to do so. They were stored in an unsecure location in Florida. Uh, the, there was very little, if any, care or custody uh, of these documents, uh, meaning they were not stored in you know, a, a uh, uh, heavily secured room. They were not guarded. Uh, there was no mechanism for controlling who had access to them. Uh, and, you know, when requested to return the documents uh, to the National Archive, uh, the Trump and, and others at Mar-a-Lago uh, stonewalled and, you know, uh, uh, lied and covered up and actually went so far as to relocate boxes so that they wouldn't be found uh, in a search. Um, all of these things are criminal acts. Now, granted that this trial will be bought, brought in the Southern District of New York, I'm sorry, of Florida, which is a red state, 
there is a high likelihood that members of the jury will be uh, those who supported the former president uh, when he ran for election. So it remains to be seen how this trial is going to play out. Now, it also remains to be seen what impact, if any, this is going to have on the 2024 presidential race. So, you know, we are going to be looking into this. Uh, we are going to be, be studying and, and researching what the potential impacts are. And we will bring all of that information to you in an upcoming episode. Uh, but for now, that's going to do it. So, you know, you're up to date. Donald Trump has been indicted on 37 counts of federal uh, violations. And uh, he will be arraigned. Uh, actually, Tuesday, the day this program airs, uh, he will uh, be arraigned that day. So it remains to be seen what happens. We will keep you posted. If you have any comments or questions about the show or you need more information, please send an email to us here at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to get your thoughts, uh, both pro and con, as to what you think about this whole process and procedure. So, you know, that's going to do it. Please, everybody, stay safe, protect yourself. COVID is still a thing. And, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, we are doing what we can to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. With that being said, thank you all for tuning in as you do. I greatly appreciate it. And I look forward to our next conversation in seven days. Mm -hmm.